0: Download the free Anchor app right now, or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast Stardom is within your reach.
1: I'm Carrie Corgan, and this is The Opus, an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. In our latest season, I'm joined by Lizzie Hale, Warren Zanes, Daphne A. Brooks, and many more to revisit Jeff Buckley's grace. We discuss Buckley's femininity in an era of hypermasculine alt-rock, how the record's mythology was shaped by his tragic death, and the delicate work of keeping his legacy alive. Find us at Consequence of Sound or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with it's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. A big hello to all the subscribers of the series so far. Appreciate you all checking in. Uh, the multiple interviews we put out every single week. If you're not a subscriber, of course, now's a good moment. To hit that subscribe button that's in front of you, uh, you can do it at iTunes and Apple Podcasts and YouTube and Spotify and anywhere you get your favorite podcast from. But if you're already, uh, give it a rating, leave a review, tell us uh, hello and where you're listening from. I'm Kyle Mayer. Today my guest is the band Fastball, who are back with a brand new album called The Help Machine. I'll be once again talking with Miles, who's going to give us the details on uh, what was really a quick turnaround for the band these days, having come off of the 2017 record Step Into Light. But this has a lot of different Different sounds, And that's because of some interesting collaborations, chances that they're taking in the studio. Uh, Miles teamed up with Andy Steck from Y Oak on the title track, which happens to be the first single. They also have the legendary Charlie Sexton uh, taking on a solo on one of the tracks. Members of Band of Heathens and Cracker. And it all makes for one really good stew. Uh, again, we're going to talk about that title track, how it came to be and how it sounds so different, and what that title, The Help Machine, might represent to Miles. He'll also tell us about channeling Neil Young on one of the guitar solos and how Richard Thompson influenced one of the quieter moments. And we'll also turn the clocks back just a little bit to 2009 to talk about a fastball record called Little White Lies. Uh, One of my favorites, but uh, as Miles will tell you, uh, one of the lowest points of the band. But for the most part, it's all about this new one, The Help Machine. It's Kyle Meredith with Fastball. Kyle, it's Miles. How are you? Congrats on the help machine. It's uh it's quick. I mean, uh fastball hasn't put out a record this quick since since you all started. <laughs> I don't think maybe the harsh light of day, the two year turnaround there, but uh but here we have the help machine and man I'm in love with it. This is one of my favorite Thank records you. that you all have done.
1: Thank you. I I really like it. I, I I think it's different, which is nice, and uh, it's just got a cool thing to it. I don't know. I, I, I It's nice when when stuff works out.
0: What was there any reason for the quick turnaround this time? This band has
1: a kind of bad habit of going away for a while and not not getting back around to to recording and stuff and we had some momentum so it's mostly that just just we got some momentum and let's make another record we got a really good a really good team assembled of the manager and booking agent and all that stuff Just for a while part of the reason we took such a long break is we just kind of let the band you know atrophy we let have things just kind of fell apart there for a while in the I don't know, 2009 to 2015, mm-hmm. and we didn't, we just kind of let everything go. So it, it took a while to get everything back. And then once it's back, it's kind of like a circus. You kind of <laughs> have to, you know, if you close down the circus, this is a real pain in the butt to get the circus up and running again. So you want to, as long as it's open and running, you want to try to keep it open and running. I
0: guess my analogy. Uh, it's a good analogy. I can understand it. <laughs> yeah. When you did come back with, with Step Into Light in 2017 and and it was, you know, a great record and had the classic fastball sound to it and you know I, I know you and I talked about that record as well. But then you come and this isn't exactly that. Like there are the fastball songs on here, but especially when we hear the first single with the help machine, it's an entirely different ball game. Pun somewhat yeah. intended
1: serendipitous how that came about because i i i had the song written but i didn't know how i was gonna record it i knew it was really vibey and i wasn't necessarily i wasn't around the band at the time you just never know when inspiration is really going to strike so what had happened was i booked a little studio time in this little town in texas called marfa texas there's population three thousand maybe Twenty five hundred people, but yeah. it has a recording studio.
0: <laughs> Priorities. And the
1: guy who rent, the guy who runs the recording studio's name is Gory Smelly. I'm not kidding.
0: <laughs> I feel bad for name. laughing. That's a real name. <laughs> oh, well, well, you know, I think he would have changed
1: it if he was worried about it. He really <laughs> just goes with it. Gory Smelly. It's a memorable name. It is. So I went over to Gory's place, and I was going to record. I didn't know what I was going to record. And all of a sudden, he said, well, there's a guy named Andy who wants to come check out the studio. Do you mind if he comes by? And Andy is the, happened to be the multi-instrumentalist who plays with this band, Y-Oak. So Andy came in and checked out the studio, and I just said, what do you play? And he said, well, I play keyboard and I play drums. And he actually plays guitar, too. And I said, do you want to play on, on this record or on this song? And he said, when? And I said, now. And he said, Sure. <laughs> so that was the genesis of, of that song is he just got behind the drum kit and I was messing around on the piano. And it, I sort of built the track up from there. So it didn't start a, a normal way where I might get the band in and do it. It just came out. But I love stuff like that because some of my favorite Rolling Stone songs, they're not they're not all on there. You know, mm-hmm. Moonlight Mile, Keith Richards is not on the track. Happy by, you know, happy. the. I need love to make, keep me happy. That's not Charlie Watts playing. That's not. So at this point in our career, I don't think it's that important that we all have to be on every song every time, you know, out of my head, I just play the guitar solo. That's it. So it's, I've never been, my whole thing is get the song right and, and and get it so that it's evocative and and that's breathing and beautiful. And don't worry so much about personnel on every single track because my, again, my favorite bands that they've shifted that stuff around.
0: And you've talked about it before. I mean, fastball, to a certain degree, has always been two bands in on one album uh, with, with the way you all have kind of separated.
1: Yeah, I I think so. Tony has a certain sensibility that is very different than my sensibility. And the funny thing is, uh, we just did a duo show uh, in Georgia. And after the show, we were talking about something. Oh, we were talking about that Emerson, Link, and Palmer song from the beginning, which I've started mm-hmm. to cover. Mm-hmm. And I love that song. I love it until the keyboard solo comes in and then I hate it. And I'm like, what a, what a just ruin a perfect song with that noodly nonsense at the end. And he goes, that's crazy. I love that solo. And that's when it gets good. And you know, we started to have an argument and he's like, we just don't see eye to eye. And I said, that's why people pay money to see us. <laughs> if we saw eye to eye, it'd be the most boring thing in the world, yeah. but we don't. And that, that is the trick. Is there's tension and the tension is what
0: makes it. I mean, it's true. And, and, you know, as a fan, obviously we know which tracks are yours and and which tracks are Tony. Although we couldn't, I couldn't tell you, you know, much more beyond that, like who's on or not on what tracks or something like that. But it is, it's always been fun to hear that uh, on on a record. So, you know, it's a long way of saying I completely agree with you. I I do want to stick on that track for a second. And, and, you know, we're big fans of of Y Oak around here. And and so I can hear. Some of that vibe that they have, you know, on that track. And you talked like was the original version anything like what you all ended up with?
1: Yeah, well what I like about the song is it's almost like a mantra or something. It's almost like something you would go to meditation center and hear, you know? It's just no 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 no. It's kind of like a drugged out row, row, row your boat, and so <laughs> I recorded it like two or three different times at home, and it always had a vibe to it because it's just so repetitive and it's so it it's drawn out and it, it's got something inherently to it. But part of it was having Andy there. Part of it were the instruments laying around the studio in this guy's in Gory's place. There was a uh, there was a Juno, so that. <laughs> Uh, that's not an instrument I would normally have at my disposal or or <laughs> order out for or try to hunt down. It was just there. So again, it's just serendipitous. You know, it was just there. Like, what does this do? Mm-hmm. What does this sound like? And we just plug it in and and do it. And then Bruce Hughes, who uh, played on the record, which we've used him before on on um, Little White Lies, mm-hmm. he played bass on the record, and he actually came to Marfa to play bass on the Help Machine. So then, fast forward because we did that song of I think maybe a year or two before we actually got around to recording the rest of the album. So we got around to to recording the rest of the record and Bruce was like, who played on this song? I could do it better. I'm like, it's you. (laughs) It's you. (laughs) He's like, damn it. I'm like, yeah, it's you. And there's no need to do it again. It's perfect. He's like, yeah, okay. (laughs)
0: And I think that was one of the, uh, you know, kind of the the stories here is that, uh, you know, having him play bass, that was like you took Tony off bass. I guess that goes further into you all trying different things on this record.
1: Well, Tony's never wanted to be a bass player. He just kind of got saddled with it. And because there were only three of us and he has a very aggressive bass style, which is wonderful. Some fans are like, that's the way they ought to be all the time, mm. but even Tony would say, "No, you know, that's a specific sound and you don't need to do the same thing all the time. You want to just explore. That's that's if if you're a creative person, that's what you do. And people aren't going to like everything you do either. It's not that's not what you're doing it for. We didn't make the way so that we could, you know, make a lot of money and everyone would love us. That that was never Uh, if you try to do that, you're going to fail because you're going to be trying to second, you're trying to guess what an audience, who the hell knows what an audience wants. They don't even know until it's in front of them. Right. So it has to come from the heart. It has to be authentic and it has to be like, this is what I was feeling on this particular day. And that's what all our songs are. So, you know, I've never tried to worry about, every time I've, like, I moved to Nashville for a while to try to write country songs. And that was the closest I ever came to Trying to anticipate what the marketplace wanted, and it was the worst. I just go home feeling dirty at <laughs> <Yeah>. night, <laughs> like I shouldn't be doing this. This is this is a horrible way. I'm not saying all those people do that, but but there definitely is a kind of formula or something. And I just don't. I'm not interested in that. You know, you got to do. I've been lucky that I've been able to have a career. I know a lot of really talented people that just don't, and a lot of it is just luck, you know, or timing or whatever it right, is. Right. So. I, I appreciate what I've got, and the world seems to, the universe seems to reward me more when I just follow my path, follow my heart, and do my thing, and not worry too much about what someone thinks I should be doing.
0: <laughs> well, let me compliment you on some of those things that you are doing on the record, then, because um, uh, well, I should ask, is that you doing the guitar solo on Surprise Surprise? Oh yeah. Oh God, man, that's, that's- one of my favorite moments of the record.
1: Me too. I, I thought I really got that one down. I really wanted a
0: kind of crazy. Uh, solo and
1: and uh, I think we got that one. So
0: you know, we we talk about a lot of influences on songwriting with with artists. Do you do you find that you ever have an influence when you're you know going into a solo like that? Are you trying Neil to get Young. a sound? Oh, Neil.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about Neil Young. The guitar was really dirty, and I was just thinking about the way he plays on Crazy Horse stuff. I was just kind of going for that. Well, the song has some real dissonance built into it. So I just kind of, but I mean, it was like one or two takes. I didn't, I didn't, that's why I like it. I didn't sit there and labor over it. I just kind of went for it and we just happened to get lucky and catch it. Like Neil would have done.
0: He wouldn't have done many takes on that. Yeah. I don't think. Uh, What's the sample at the end of the, at the end of that track? That was just some dude proselytizing on the street
1: at the beach, near the beach in San Diego. And I was walking past him and he was so intense and it was so apocalyptic that I'm sad to say I recorded it. <laughs> I was like, I've got to get this. This is like a field record. I need this. This is, you know, I'm, I should maybe try to find him and give him a hundred bucks. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's He was just going off about in the fire burning and um, talking about he who I don't know what he was talking about, because he was saying something like he who is not in the fire burning, but of the fire. It was so intense. He was shouting it at people. And uh, I just decided to record it. I just turned my phone on and walked past him and recorded it. And then I was looking for a place to put it. You know, Um, I also have a recording that I didn't get to use of i actually got to jam with these um maasai warriors wow. i went to africa yeah several years ago and we got to have dinner with this chief of this maasai tribe and after dinner there was kind of a a hoedown if you will where they were all dancing and jumping up and down to their music and it was like ooh, 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 ooh. it was super intense and i actually sang with them i actually got the guitar out and did i put a spell on you with them <laughs> <laughs> they were providing the rhythm i have a recording of that somewhere but then i recorded them doing their thing and then i had a song that didn't make the record that incorporated that sample but it just with a song just refused to let it let us finish it like it wasn't it was like a writing thing couldn't get it done but uh that's where it, that thing came from long answer to you
0: no it's all right yeah i was wondering and excuse me for not getting the lyrics yet does that sample go with the song or or is it just a nice spot to lay it down
1: i just thought it would work there um i like putting stuff together and then seeing what happens seeing if it works
0: or seeing if
1: if people ascribe meaning to things or if i ascribe meaning to things i if it was glaring or I, I would have taken it out, but, or if people had enough people in my camp had complained, like, I, maybe I would have taken it out because I've not been known to put things like on uh, sooner or later, uh, that, yeah, baby, yeah, baby. I wish that wasn't there. <laughs> 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 our A&R guy tried to talk me out of it and I didn't listen to him. But the reason that was there was another guy that plays on our recordings a lot and Jam is in the band on and off is Kevin McKinney. And when I demoed sooner or later, he was doing that. But he was doing it in a much cooler, laid-back way (laughs) that I just couldn't get. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyways.
0: Well, that's, you know, uh, looking for the threads, you know, especially, you know, when you listen to an album as a piece. And and there that is, that sample. And it is so interesting. And, of course, it's it's very different from everything that we're hearing on the record. And it stands out. and, And then... You have that title, the Help Machine, you know, with the title track and everything. And I start—that's when I start going. Does all this connect? Like, what? What does the Help Machine represent in this occasion?
1: Well, I don't know. This song just kind of tumbled out of me, and 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 this was all. A lot of these songs that I wrote came before the rise of Trump and the rise of the incredible discord we're having in the country and around the world. Seems like around the world, things are just heating up and getting more and more kind of divided. None of the songs, I wasn't trying to comment on that, but but with the record coming out now, it fits really nicely, I think, with the times, or un You know, it's just, it's, I like the way that songs, I don't know where songs come from. They're just like thoughts. Right. You know, where do thoughts come from? That's the same thing. And so I like that the ones you keep are just, you're like, how did I, I don't even know where that came from or how it came out. I wasn't, in the case of The Help Machine in particular, I wasn't. I was trying my hardest to stay out of my way because I've ruined songs before by going, what am I trying to say here? I really need to get down to what it is. Uh. Well, the world's a terrible place. And you ruin the song. And then you can't go back for some reason. It's like you've broken it. It's, it's like kind of like a really nice piece of wood and you're going to make furniture out of it. And if you screw it up, you, you've ruined the wood and you can't really get it back. I've ruined so many songs that i don't like anymore and it's awful to have them disfigured like that (laughs) so when you get this pure connection coming in you kind of have to really try hard to not screw it up to not force it i guess this is what i would say you let it come let it come it's not coming all the way it's fine there's there's tomorrow and but try to keep an open mind that's the most important thing keep an open mind don't try to force a preconceived this song's about this, and I'm going to be really specific. That mm-hmm. that just wrecks it. And the best songs are open to interpretation. That's what, Those are the ones that really speak to people. I just tried to do it, and I, I I feel like I really succeeded because I feel like the song speaks to people, but it it's open-minded enough, and so in answer to your question, I don't know what it, what it means, really, other than a longing for some sort of answer where there is none.
0: Well, I mean, it's true because it's, it's so nice that it, it, as you're saying, it does line up... For whatever's happened, everything that's happening in the world right now. But if this were in a different age, it still would have meant something meaningful. Yeah. That's great. I think so. I'll compliment another song while I'm on the songs, too. Um, Never Say Never. Oh, uh, yeah. I, Marty <laughs> Robbins meets Warren Zevon, one of your all's <laughs> finest moments. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Yeah. Wow, I almost forgot about that one. Yeah. It's, uh, I wrote that song because I learned how to play Vincent Black Lightning by Richard Thompson. Yep. And uh, that song is in like a just weird C tuning. So you got to tune the E string down to a C and you got to tune the A string down to a G and it, it's just a pain in the butt. And and by the, the guitar wants to keep going out of tune once you get it there. And so it takes a while to settle in. And I used to uh, tune my guitar to play that song live and I thought, God, I go through all this trouble to tune it. I should write another song in this in this tuning so I can hang out here for a little longer. <laughs> so that's why I wrote Never Say Never, is I just I I had it in that tuning and I just started playing. I came up with that little Mex Mexican sounding riff and, and then I wrote all the words, but that was the genesis of it. It was simply a practical that's practical it. need.
0: It's interesting (laughs) because you do. To me, it does, uh, and I can I can hear the Richard Thompson thing that you're talking about. You know, obviously, hear Marty Robbins, which I I love. Uh, The Warren Zevon thing, you know, you drop. I think it's cocaine that you mentioned in there. You drop that in, it's automatically, it's like, oh, it's a Warren Zevon thing right
1: there. (laughs) Well, I love Warren Zevon. I love him, and I I cover the hockey song. Oh, cool! Because I've got this other band called the Resentments, and that that is a total improvisational ensemble where we just get together on Sunday and no one knows what anyone's going to do. And then you just pull a song out of the hat kind of and play. And so the hockey song was I, so detailed and rich and I had to learn it. I just had to do it. So I learned that one. And uh, we play, we also do Mutineer. I don't mm-hmm. sing it, but the other guy does. So Zevon's definitely in there. Uh, and in terms of, of people I admire and people I think are real songwriters, like beyond just... Having a catchy hit is is you know it's almost like reading a book, and uh, I like artists like that.
0: Well, while we're throwing some compliments here uh, to some other folks, you know I know you got a, a lot of other guests on here besides Andy from Wyoke I mean former members of Cracker and Band of Heathens, Charlie Sexton, which we're also big fans and in uh, and complete respect for him. What what roles does uh, Charlie play on this record?
1: He just came in to do the guitar solo on "Girl You Pretended to Be," which is going to be the next song we're going to put out before we put out the record. And I could have come up with something, but that guy plays circles around me. So it was like, why don't we get him to do it? He'll really nail it. And there's an example of a song that I'm not really on because Tony played acoustic, which normally would have been my deal. I sing harmonies and stuff, but we're a real kind of open-minded. Like I don't need to be on every song. You don't need to be on every song. You know, whatever's facilitating the thing, you know? So, uh, Charlie came in and blazed through the track and then, Now I had to go back and try to approximate what he's doing because that became one of the first songs we started to do live to add to the set, even though the record wasn't out. We're like, this is a good honky tonky barn burner type thing. And so then I'm like, great, I got to learn all this stuff. I can't even play, but, uh, but there it is. You know, he had a bender. That's the other thing. He had a telecaster for those laymen in listening, uh, Telecasters, they make them with this B string bender where you can bend the note up with you just just by moving the guitar upwards. There's a little knob, mm-hmm. so all that twanging. So that you can't do that unless you have a bender, and I don't. So <laughs> I could go get one, I guess. But I, you know, I'm not Rick Nielsen. I don't. I don't take 70 guitars on the road. Yeah. You know. Oh, I need the bender. Give me the bender.
0: Bring me the bender. <laughs> So it's going to be the Miles version of the solo when you get live, and that's fine. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It, it is. It's such a great record, and and you know I became a fan of the of the album on the very first listen. I can't congratulate you guys enough uh, on the Thank help machine you. here. It's cool. And I'll um just as a closer, I'll point out. Uh, I know this year hit the 10th anniversary of Little White Lies, which seems to be you know this. This almost forgotten record, because it, it was in the middle ground between the first chapter of the band and you know what's become the second chapter of the band. But, but that's tracks. That album's another one that's got uh, a lot of my favorite songs that you guys do. So, just recognition there.
1: Thank you. I'm. Mean, thanks a lot. I, I appreciate it. I do feel like that record is the neglected, uh, for one thing, because of some sort of distribution that our managers recently straightened out. It wasn't available all over the world digitally on, like, the Spotify's and Apple Music's, whereas the other ones were. So that one wasn't, hasn't been listened to as much. But it also was probably at the, like, lowest point of our career. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like a, a ghost town. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it, you know, that's another factor. I, you know, that, that was a hard period of my life, just I think for everybody. It was just nothing seemed Seem to be happening, but I'm very proud that we pers- just kept going, you know, yeah. and kept making music.
0: Well, I will tell you, we still play. Uh, especially, I know mono to stereo gets a lot of play over here at FPK. Uh, oh, great the Title track gets some spins. I mean, it's a solid record. Even at you know, even at your lowest, uh, you're, you're still put out quality music. So that, that says something. Gonna
1: die with your boots on, son. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Miles. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much. Great to talk to. Great to talk to you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Big thanks to Miles. The new fastball record is called The Help Machine. Now, for some bonus fun, I'm going to include the uh, two previous interviews I've also had with Miles. Just last year marked the 20th anniversary of their breakthrough album, All the Pain Money Can Buy. That's the one with The Way and Fire Escape. And Miles and I jumped on the phone then, too, to talk about the anniversary uh, what life was like during the recording and touring of the record, also losing a Grammy to Aerosmith, and hanging out with uh, David Lee Roth, Mark McGrath, and Dennis Rodman in a strip club. Oh, yeah, that's all in here. Part two of Kyle Meredith with Fastball.
1: Kyle, hey, it's Miles. How are you? I'm all right,
0: man. How are you? Good. So first 20 years of all the pain mm-hmm. money can buy, uh, <laughs> and just like that, right?
1: Uh, I didn't feel like it was just like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, time does fly by, but uh, definitely been. I definitely, it definitely feels like it's been a long time since that record came out to me.
0: I kind of want to go back to the beginning because going back, I don't think I'd realized how young you were as a band when all that happened. Because I mean, there there was an album before it, but you'd only been a band for what three years, right?
1: No, well, four. And again, to me, I guess everything's relative or perspective-oriented. You know, I thought we'd been around a while. Um, but maybe some people think it didn't take that long. I just, when I think of people like uh, the police or whatever, you're like, wow, you know, they formed in 1977 and they broke up in 1983. Yeah. So they got all that done in the space of six years and we'd already been together four years before we had a first hit. So I don't know. I guess I was thinking differently about it.
0: Yeah. Well, what was um, the what, what was the story on the first record? Like, the success of that record, w- w- was there much behind it?
1: There was no success. <laughs> I would never use success to describe that record, <laughs> even though I liked the record. It, it was a out-and-out flop, you know? it's just The thing is, they didn't promote the record, and without any promotion, it didn't even really get a fair shot. I don't think people even knew it actually existed. It felt much like I'd been in this band, Big Car, and we had a record. That came out um, in 1992, and it felt a lot like that record. Like, wow, you put all the sweat and, and heartache into this record, making a record, and then no one even knows it exists, and then the band breaks up because it's just so demoralizing. But So it kind of felt like that. But, but Fastball was a way better band, the big car, and a way more kind of solid unit. We were definitely going to keep going until we couldn't go no more. So that was a difference.
0: Yeah, going into all the pain Money Can't Buy then, uh, I mean, talk about it sort of in a similar fashion, when, when the first record flops and that's, you know, on a more or less a major label, I don't know, what, like, what, what was the feeling well, in the camp at that thought, time?
1: we definitely thought this was it, you know, we get one more. We were amazed that we got another shot to record, and it was a bizarre set of circumstances that allowed us to, to make another record, because any other any other label or any other kind of set of circumstances, we would have just been dropped. There was no reason from a bean counters point of view to keep us around. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think they, they were like, wow, these guys could be big, could have a, a monster album. We just need to let them develop. I don't know. Our A&R guy certainly felt that way, but there were a couple of people at the label that maybe saw potential, but the, the real big kahunas um, did not. And the only reason that we got to make another record was that the big kahuna got fired. So then it came down to the accountant to say yay yeah, or nay. Also, Michael Eisner at Disney was there, and he came and saw the band once, so maybe that played some sort of role. I've never heard confirmation on that. That might just be me <laughs> at this moment um, musing that maybe that happened. But really, I think it just came down to that there was a vacuum of power. There was there was no one in the driver's seat, and so the accountant who was knew he was going to get fired or... Something like that was like I don't care,
0: yeah,
1: fine with me. Make another (laughs) fastball, um. And so we definitely felt like we were living on borrowed time. Like, well, okay, wow, okay, we got we got another shot to make another record, but there's another there's a regime change coming, and they they might just say who who the hell is this? Drop them, you know, drop everybody that wasn't here before.
0: In the nineties, that that happened all the time. If you were all the time, all the time, you didn't. I mean, yeah, didn't, didn't get those chances.
1: No. Uh-uh. Nope. It wasn't like the 70s,
0: <laughs>
1: where you could make album after album. It's like, and then his fifth album hit, you know, it's like, no, that, that didn't happen in the 90s. You were lucky to get two records.
0: Well, when it finally happens, so you guys do record the record, but it, uh, at least on paper, I'm going to say, <laughs> it looks like it actually happens pretty quickly at that point. Like, as the story goes, six months later, you know, you're riding high.
1: Yeah, no, that is true. We recorded the album in the summer of 97. And then, but from, our, from my perspective, it was like agonizing wait. We didn't know what was going to happen. We, there was no green light. It wasn't like, yeah, and then it's coming out here, and then this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. None of that was in the cards at all. It was just like, okay, it's in the can. <laughs> <laughs> now let's see if we can get it out to the world. And that all depends on who's coming in who the new label head is and what they decide to do, et cetera. <clears throat> and what happened, another um, kind of strange set of events happened in that a radio guy there decided to preemptively kind of take the song to radio, even though there was no boss yet. And so he took the song and started playing it for program directors around the country, you know, let's say in uh, maybe November or maybe even December of, of ninety seven and the song just blew up yeah. you know
0: it's it, it that song didn't sound like anything else right then i mean uh, other than you know it had the pop rock qualities to it which was definitely a a, a happen and scene is the words that popped into my mind for better or worse um but but the style of that song it was really sort of different than anything else out there like for for that radio person to have heard that is is really awesome
1: yeah you know we were using a different bucket of paint than pretty much everybody we 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 just we like we we've always liked old school stuff songs from the 50s and 60s and you know and then there's the whole texas the texas music scene and there's there's lots of uh, conjunto music and and blues and country and there's all these different streams and strains of music that subconsciously make their way into uh our thing and into, you know, me personally, into my mind. And what I think of as a hit song is not a hit song. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hit song, maybe 30 years, 40 years, at this point, 50, 60 years ago. But back then it wasn't a hit song then. I I wasn't thinking like Stone Temple Pilots, like, you know, that kind of music Uh or or Soundgarden or Nirvana. I was thinking like Johnny Rivers, you
0: know, (laughs) secret
1: agent, man. That's like, yeah, that's a hit song, you know. It's so outdated. So I I was, you know, I had a different kind of template for what I thought would be, would make a great song. And Tony wrote the song, but, you know, the guitar Mm -hmm. parts and everything, that was all coming from, I was thinking of that kind of thing. Luckily, there were other songs on the radio. The radio was wide open for this brief moment in time. As far as rock and roll, yeah. it, there was this brief moment in time where people were having hits with really weird stuff, and That's true. so it we got lucky that we came around at that time even even two years later, it was too late. Two years later, good luck it was all or maybe even one year later, it was all kid rock and Papa Roach right. and
0: uh,
1: you know what I mean oh, and yeah. you, no, you were never going to, ever going to get played. The whole playlist changed, so there was just this weird, everything was just synchronicity. very strange yeah. how it all happened.
0: Well, I, I sort of, I don't you may have known this. You've heard this record a whole lot of times, I'm sure, throughout your life, if not for just playing it. But when I went back and listened to it just a little while ago, I thought it's interesting because there is almost some self-prophecy happening there. When you look at the title, like, Which Way to the Top and the words in Sooner or Later, and in even the line in uh, "in Warm Fuzzy Feeling where it's scratching its way to number one, like, everything in these songs is like, we're going to make it!
1: <laughs> well, there's some of that in there, but there's also a lot of, like, no, we're not going anywhere. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Charlie the Met chasing his tail just as fast as he can, you know, and there's there's it's definitely, um, I don't know where... I, that was my frame of mind like how do i how do i get out of here and get up to where i want to be because by that point i was 31 which is is not young for a rock musician you know it you know now people play music till they're 75 but but 20 years ago i think it was still somewhat that that was you're getting a little long in the tooth to have never had a hit you Mm -hmm. know so i kind of felt like it was now or, or never uh sort of and i was Kind of writing songs like that, but it wasn't really that deliberate. It was it's more subconscious, I guess. But right. I do think that songs have power. I do. I think they have a they're like little affirmations. And so maybe it wasn't such a good idea to name our next record the harsh light of day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well um I, I wanna pull back well, let me put that a different way. I'm gonna push the curtain forward because I, I know uh, especially talking with musicians all the time, that even when all this success is happening, you're just on tour most of the time and, and you don't really notice a lot of it. But from the fan perspective, you know, suddenly this video is just on M T V all the time. It's all over radio all the time. And so I, I sort of wonder like, did you get to enjoy what I'll generically call the M T V life any during that time?
1: Yeah. It's- it was a lo- it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and it is really great. And at the same time, it's really empty and meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I think that's why so many people end up sadly taking their own lives or something. Is maybe they think that if they can make it there to the big time, they won't feel anymore of the kind of struggle that we all have to go through as human beings. It's just part of being alive. Yeah. I mean, everybody has gets depressed. Everybody some more than others everybody has to struggle with like why am i here and what's the meaning of life those are like big questions that people wrestle with whether they know it or not and um it's easy to buy into this idea that if you make it you know you're gonna everything's gonna be great you'll have everything you need you know you got money and you'll have sex and you'll have you know guest lists and life. there'll be no problems but problems will always find you (laughs) they're inevitable it doesn't matter so there's that but i'm not gonna lie and trying to make it sound like it was miserable, it was It was a great deal of fun as were, well.
0: Yeah. Were, were there any of those, um and this might be too much on the spot, were there any of those moments that I would say, you know, with success does come some odd, surreal, sometimes bizarre moments yeah. that you guys found yourself oh, in? Oh yeah,
1: one of my favorites was, at the end of this tour, I went with the drummer from Sugar Ray, the tour was over, but we were both in New York at the same time, and we went out, and I, I dragged him to go see Victoria Williams play. And then he dragged me scores the strip bar in Manhattan (laughs) where Mark McGrath was hanging out. And he was in the VIP section, Mark McGrath for Sugar Ray Mm -hmm. dragged me there. We go inside and we're in the VIP section and I look and I have to rub my eyes. Sitting there is my childhood hero, David Lee (laughs) (laughs) Roth. And I was like, this is just too good to be true. I just can't believe this. So I, I wanted to sit next to David Lee Roth, and there was a space next to him, but I had to ask this really big gentleman wearing a pink shirt and a cowboy hat to move over. And he moved over, and when I turned over to look and see who it was, it was Dennis Rodman. <laughs> so, so I spent the evening, or part of the evening, sitting between David Lee Roth and Dennis Rodman at a strip bar in New York, and it was it was a, it was was a gas. And that was the most surreal... That was probably of all the crazy experiences i had that was one of the most surreal and and incredible you know just like how did i get here this is amazing
0: do you do you ask david lee roth about you know the fanboy questions that you've always had burning inside you
1: he had a running dialogue with himself that there was no (laughs) interrupting when i when i sat down next to him he said have the bags arrived the bags have not arrived uh did the bags get stuck in transit he was you know i think he was reciting a novel I don't know what he was doing, but he certainly wasn't, hi, how are you? <laughs> he was kind of off on his own little trip, but I didn't care because he sang a line. I think Mark put him up to this. He sang a line from Flyerscape. Oh Wow. Uh, yeah, he did. He sang the line, how about you? He went, how about you? Wow. And, <laughs> one of his and I was like, done. Done. Nightmade. That's it. Nightmade. Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. I I love Van Halen those those five albums it's just to me that's like top shelf rock and roll. Yeah. So yeah, I was pleased.
0: <laughs> now, I will say, you know, as far as, you know, done, don't need anything else, but by the end of this all, you became known as Grammy nominated Fastball. Like, you know, you ended up with the uh, the nominations. That's that that has to be a nice ribbon to the to the run. It's I guess. an
1: honor just to be nominated. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. Unfortunately, Aerosmith was also nominated mm. and I knew at that time, if you saw the word Aerosmith, you knew Steven Tyler was going to be making an acceptance. It's Not to take it away, they're like one of the greatest rock bands of all time, but I just knew, like, ah, you know, just our luck, you know. Right. So we didn't win anything, but it was fun. It was fun to go to the Grammys, fun to go to the MTV Music Awards. All that stuff was really fun, you know, And and I'm glad I got to be a part of it. It isn't, you know, over the years and doing it, I could safely say that's not the reason you do it. That's the frosting, it's not the cake.
0: Well, though. with 20 years, you know, a big round number, are you guys going to do anything with this? Are there anniversary plans?
1: We're going to, yeah, we're going to put out a reissue, the album, put it out on vinyl for the first time okay. ever. And as far as shows, I don't know. We're still um, debating that. I, I, I can't safely tell you, like, oh, we're going to play the record in its entirety like a lot of bands do, because I don't think, you know... Tony wants to do that. So I just don't know. Mm-hmm. We, we've we kind of, one thing that's maybe hampered our career, but also I'm proud of is we, we're not the biggest, we're not quick to be, you know, like, hey, y'all, we're going to do, you know, we, we don't go for those things so readily, usually. We're usually a little more subtle, mm-hmm. maybe maybe to our detriment about what we're doing. So We'll have to
0: see. Well, I I think it's quite the accomplishment, anyway, and and that's that record's still a lot of fun to listen to. You know, just throwing it in the headphones on a sunny day like it is right now in Louisville, uh, I have a lot of fun with it. So, you know, congratulations for what that means. Whatever congratulations can mean twenty years later. Hey, the music still exists. Look at that.
1: (laughs) I'm, you know, I'm really proud of the record, and I'm, I'm even more thankful that people still care. You know, people still care and want to are interested in that stuff and want. Want to see us play and and still like our band? So that's if you'd tell me 20 years ago that'd be happening. I'd, I'm not sure I'd believe you. So mm. I'm 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 glad.
0: Well, I love it every time you guys put out records. Uh, I've loved the last few just as much as the early stuff. So
1: thank you. Thanks so much.
0: All right, Miles. It's great talking to you again.
1: Okay. Thank you, Kyle. All right.
0: Cheers. You too. Bye. Bye. That was a 2018 interview with uh, Miles and Fastball talking about uh, their breakthrough record, 1998's "All the Pain Money Can Buy." Now, our final interview in this episode uh, picks up at 2017, just the year before the year before. Fastball had just released the album Step Into Light. It was their first LP since 2009, and Miles and I did talk about uh, what went on in that time between, but also the uh, inspiration behind the sounds of the record and the backstory to uh, one of my favorite songs on that one called Frenchie and the Punk, part three of Kyle Meredith with Fastball.
1: Kyle, this is Miles from Fastball. How are you?
0: All the compliments. You guys have not lost a step in your songwriting whatsoever. It's Thank you. a seriously catchy and great album that you guys got to hear. So, Thank you. Well done. And I guess, you know, we have to probably go by the part of the story that I'm sure everybody hits at. You know, it's, the surprising thing is there was such a gap in between, which I know you guys were busy and you were still touring. But what was sort of the circumstances that led to, what, eight years between records?
1: Well, the short answer, I guess, is life gets in the way. A longer answer might just be, I the Little White Lies record and, and the tour and everything we did with that. I just remember I didn't really have much fun on it. I I, I remember that being kind of a dark period in the band <laughs> or just a real struggle. I think we all walked away from that just going forget it. You know, like we didn't. The great thing about a band is we never really broke up. Um, But we did take extended breaks, and that was the longest break. But we were still playing shows and still doing stuff together. It's just we were off. You know, I was busy getting a divorce. (laughs) That took some time. Um, I don't know what the other guys went through. We were all kind of in the same town and certainly socializing, hanging out, collaborating. But it wasn't any concerted effort. And then we did... A big tour in 2013, with under the sun tour, and after that tour, you know, I realized I myself, anyways, was like, wow, there's a lot of people that still love this band, and we should, we should make a more concerted effort to try to get our house in order and go out there because we didn't really have a booking agent, didn't have a manager, didn't have any of those things that you need. I wouldn't be talking to you right now if we didn't have a publicist. Mm-hmm. So those are all the kind of boring nuts and bolts that you need to have if you're gonna be at a certain level. Otherwise you're the one calling everybody.
0: Right, right. <laughs> and
1: that doesn't work too good. <laughs> so, you know, we just had to kinda of get all the all the parts back and you know, figure yeah. out all that stuff. That takes time. And and in the midst of it, we just literally got together and said, Let's bang out a record. We did it in two weeks.
0: Yeah. So And and for what it's, it's worth before pretty- I get to that part, um, we still play that "Little White Lies" record. We're such, I'm such a big fan of, especially that song "Mono to Stereo." It still gets a lot of play here uh, thank, on the station. Thank so, you. may not have been a good thank time you for you guys, I, we, but it was for us.
1: <laughs> well, I thought it was a great record. That's what made it all the more of a heartache. Yeah, uh, was to do all that work and really feel like you've done some great, laid down some great music, and then just this tiny fraction of people got to hear it. But it, it, it was mostly, you know we just didn't have the team we had wasn't working right and so it just kind of sank like
0: a stone yeah.
1: but it's there if anybody wants to hear it it's yeah. online it's on
0: and it's spotify a, and it's, it's on a good record and all the rest of it. i recommend it to the people a, too. i think it's a great record yeah. well you uh, um you mentioned that you know the two weeks in the studio i mean going into that i mean you've really got to have the songs down that reminds me of a very old style of doing it, you know, that, that 50s style or whatever it is, 70s style, you know, before it was just so easy for everybody to make a, a record in their bedroom. I mean, what's, what was the preparation? I mean, had the songs been around a little while? Did you guys have to really nail them down before you walked in?
1: No. Tony and I had been writing songs. You know, we just, we kind of dragged the river as i like to say (laughs) what's sitting on your hard drive (laughs) send me everything and we send each other everything and you're like no this is crap um we threw out a lot of songs and half-baked stuff and then we boiled it down to the great thing is we only need six each or something you know we're we're both pretty prolific and i picked you know he pointed at the ones he liked of mine and I pointed at the ones I liked of his and we collaborated on a few and we brought back a few old songs that we'd t- tried recording before that didn't, just didn't for whatever reason work. So we're on our ways, like an older song and so is Best Friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I didn't really didn't think it would hang together as great as it does. It's like the finished product. I was like, wow.
0: It's really and cohesive. Like, yeah,
1: Yeah. And it sounds really good and I was also excited that the I never ever thought we had much of a sound, like identifiable sound, um, until now. You know, when we did that record, I hadn't really worked with those guys in a while, and we got in the room and started playing. And I'm listening back, and I'm going, "There it is! Yeah. There's a, there's a sound. It's yeah. crazy. It's it it's the sound we make together, and it it is actually pretty specific." Yeah. So I, I was excited. You know,
0: I mean, there's definitely. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and throw the easy comparison, you know, Lennon McCartney with uh, the style of songwriter, because you both bring in such a thing that, as you're saying, really works together well. And and, and you have this, I, I guess, the way I hear it anyway, is you both sort of lean in a different direction. That's what makes it all interesting. But, you know, because, because Tony, he brings in, uh, I don't know, it feels like this Buddy Holly-esque sort of things to his songs, while you... I, I don't know. I was surprised to hear a, a little bit of the uh, you know a punk drive going on. Uh, we're on our way, sure, but also love comes in waves. It's really got a I don't know a Buzzcocks thing going about it.
1: Yeah, you know, I, re- I was really excited when I wrote that song. Yeah, because I wrote the baseline first, and then, anyways, when I finished it, I was so excited, and the reason was I was like, "This is a number we can play." For the rest of our lives, like live. <laughs> I just knew it would be great live. It's like impossible to screw up. It's like toast. <laughs> it's like there's no way to make bad toast unless you burn it, I guess. That's but it, this is foolproof. It's a bowl of cereal. It's foolproof because of the bass line and because nothing's happening with the guitar. So the chorus, I'm like, it's just, it's going to hit the mark every time. And it does. It Once we added it to the set, we've never done a show without it because yeah. it's such a galvanizing tune live and I, so i was just excited about that you know like here's something that's gonna change our lives even if (laughs) even if if the records do nothing it doesn't matter every time we play live we have a new surefire song because we got a few like the way out of my head every time we play those people go nuts Mm -hmm. and i knew that love comes in waves would be that type of song
0: was the, um, I don't know, was, was, was the punk thing on your mind at all just to, trying to do something driving, or is that just you fiddling around? I, I didn't know if you were trying to go for something specific when you kind of well, go for Well, yeah, like I that.
1: Mean, not, not punk specifically, but definitely something that was going to change it up, because there's so many times that have been in our set where we would have, um, you know, six or seven songs that have chugging eighth notes and, and 120 beat per minute <laughs> tempo. And when you string them all together, I call it the Gobi Desert. (laughs) You know, like I don't want to have to cross the Gobi Desert again, (laughs) you know, because everyone gets bored. The band gets bored, the audience gets bored, because it is. It's boring. If you have that many songs that are kind of similar, it's boring. So uh, as a musician, I've learned, like, you got to mix it up. You got to mix up the rhythms. You got to have different, you know, we have a waltz for the first time on any fastball record. Mm -hmm. Step into Light is is three, four times those things really psychologically make a difference on the audience if you're if you're changing it up or if there's certain rhythms that are hypnotic those kind of subliminal stuff i've gotten more into and so i definitely was leaning towards like this like yeah man that's gonna that's gonna make people move
0: okay. I love and it. so
1: um yeah i do too and I've, I've actually gotten you know i love all kinds of um music from the late 70s punk rock british and american but i've just recently gotten into the damned somehow oh, yeah. i missed the damned and i don't know how i did but boy man they're like number one on the you know the first album that nick Lowe did is just insane yeah and damn damn damned and so uh i've written that love comes in waves before that but they're definitely on my mind and th- that kind of music is on my mind just real we're gonna crash the car type music <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, you, and you've you got different styles in, in your other songs, too. And I don't know, a minute ago, you had even mentioned Best Friend, um, which I think is the only one that I noticed on the track list that you and Tony wrote together, which, you know, is kind of cute, uh, given the name. Uh,
1: he, helped <laughs> me on, uh, he helped me on Lillian Gish, which is a weird song, towards oh, the right, End. Oh, right,
0: right, right. Um,
1: and that one's strange. It's good strange time signature. And he helped me finish it because I couldn't finish it. Uh. But, yeah, Best Friend, we'd had... For a while, and uh, Tony really sings great on that. I love the, you know, all the high notes and stuff. He really, he's a great singer. So it was great to hear him, you know, really let it rip on that that
0: one. Yeah, uh, there's another one on here. I was kind of curious about with with Frenchie and the Punk. Uh, speaking of punk, Um, but y- uh. y- you've got Chris Frenchy Smith also producing it, but it's a different spelling, yes. and I didn't know if that's the same thing or different.
1: I'll tell you the story behind that song. So I had this melody, I had that whole thing going, and I had kind of what I wanted to be about. And I was singing so low, I was like, you know, this song is going to be this weird thing. You know, I'm not writing some song where... It just, I knew it had to be surreal and strange, but I couldn't come up with anything. I think I wrote three different kind of drafts of the song. I didn't like any of them. And I was, at the time I was dating this girl from France <laughs> and I was actually trying to write the song for her to sing because she was a singer. And um, so I was trying to write all these, like f- what I imagined to be French music. <laughs> But I had no idea what French music sounds like. This is just my imagination of what French music sounds like. So that was kind of the genesis behind the melody and trying to get it. And then and then I went to dinner, and I was sitting at this place eating dinner by myself at the bar. And who walks in but Frenchie, and our producer? But I hadn't seen him in a while, and the record was still a ways away. We hadn't even talked about making a record yet. Mm-hmm. And there he was. And I talked to him, and it was great to talk to him. And I just... Suddenly it all hit me in a flash because he's kind of he's not really punk rock, but he, I associate punk rock with him and some of the acts he works with. And, and I just started thinking Frenchie and I was dating a French girl, Frenchie and the punk. It just came <laughs> to me like like that. And then I had the song. Basically, I that was what I needed. I turned the corner. I think I wrote the song like when I got home or something. And so that's the story behind that, and it yeah, Frenchie is uh, definitely or the producer was definitely the the, the flashpoint, right. even though he wasn't producing the record yet. <laughs>
0: uh, I love the record. I, I'm so happy you guys are back too. Um, it really is. Thank you. It's a nice surprise because you know it, I, I know it's easy for a band to just kind of disappear into the ether one day and and no one notices. So for you guys to keep doing this and to still be you know swinging uh, as hard as you are uh, and and connecting. I'm um, really, really excited about that. So thank, thank you. you. I really I appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate the conversation, too. And hopefully I'll be able to see you guys out on the road at some point this tour. Come on out. All right, Miles. Take The care. water's fine. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye. Bye. There it is. Talking about Fastball's 2017 LP called Step Into Light. And again, big thanks to Miles for all the conversation. The new record is called The Help Machine, and it is absolutely worth you checking out? Hey, before we both get out of here uh, again, if you're not already a subscriber, I hope you take that moment to hit the subscribe button right now. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere you get your favorite podcast from, you can follow along as we release uh, interviews every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if you're already a subscriber, I hope you give us a, a big hello. Tell me where you're listening from, uh, what you liked about the episode that you heard, or just give a, a review to the entire series. You can also give a rating, and those are always huge helps as well. After that wfpk.org that's where you'll find me every monday through friday at 6 p.m eastern i do an hour of uh, the brand new songs anniversary celebrations music news clips from these interviews you can also find bonus interviews at wfpk.org consequence of has your music and film news you can find me at twitter at kyle meredith facebook slash kyle meredith that does it for another edition i'm kyle meredith i'll see you next time